on this book, A Right to Lie, Presidents, Other Liars, and the First Amendment, by our guest, Catherine J. Ross. This book's available from Penn Press and is uh, just appearing today. We're delighted to have uh, Professor Ross with us and two commentators on it, and delighted to have both an online audience and you here today at the Cato Institute. Um, let me begin by making an overarching thing that you will be familiar with by now, which is a reminder, uh, at, please keep your mask on at all times during our sessions, and indeed later at lunch, except when you're eating or drinking, which you will be doing at lunch. Pretty, uh, we, perhaps this mandate will be coming to an end soon, we shall see. Um, this, I wanted to do this book for several reasons. Catherine Ross is known to me as a, a defender of the First Amendment. Cato has three themes, I think, that really resonate in a book like this. Uh, th three things that the Cato Institute has stood for over time, these last 40 years or so. One, above all, of course, is the question of freedom of speech and what free speech means and what it means in specific instances. The second is the presidency and its limitations. And an emphasis has been on uh, the emphasis in the current mode uh, on executive power, which is not widely accepted. So our major work here there is the cult of the presidency and its problems. And finally, um, I think this book also stands for something important which is that Cato was founded in and tries to uphold the idea that there should be debates and discussions and arguments and interactions that is the free speech ideal across traditional divisions of party and ideology. The, the, this book is about things that make that difficult, right? The presidency is one because the presidency has become extremely partisan in, in really sharp ways in the sense that we, it's uh, possible to establish that uh, approval and partisanship of the president himself or herself ultimately has uh, taken the place of assessment of the economy so or how things are going in public opinion polling. So when the president changes uh, without any real change in the internal world, external world, there is change in public assessment of, say, the economy. Uh, and of course, ideology plays the same role here. So here we have a, a, an idea, though, in this book about a, a person who doesn't necessarily agree with Kate on all issues. Though so we, as I've emphasized when Catherine's been here, it's important to have a, a set of commitments that go across and bridge, provide bridges among people in the United States, which is perhaps harder today than in the past. And free speech is one of them, and we shall see. And also, I would say one final thing, which is, it seems to me that the biggest problem of, about lying is, is that it does implicate uh, all sorts of things like party and ideology, because I don't think I've ever met anyone who didn't, or at least in the last few years, who didn't think that not only was their side of whatever uh, argument correct, but certainly the other side was lying, and an important point, uh, surely lying was not protected by the First Amendment. So the government needed to get involved to, to set this straight. So let me begin with an introduction to our author today. Catherine Ross is Lyle Alverson Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School. She special, specializes in constitutional law, 
with an emphasis on the First Amendment and family law. This book has now been released. Her, her last book was Lessons in Censorship, How Schools and Courts Subvert Students' First Amendment Rights, and was named Best Book on the First Amendment by Concurring Opinions, First Amendment News. It also won the Critics' Choice Book Award from the American Education Studies Association. She's been a co-author of Contemporary Family Law since the first edition. The fifth edition, therefore suggesting great success, was published in 2019. She holds a BA and PhD in history uh, and a JD from Yale University. Before attending Yale Law School, she was on the faculty of the Yale Child Study Center at the Medical School and Bush Center on Child Development and Social Policy at Yale. Professor Ross, welcome back to the Cato Institute. And congratulations on your book. Thank you so much, John, for that gracious introduction. And I'm, I'm just delighted to be back at Cato and to be launching my new book here. I want to thank everybody who came, especially those of you who came out in person. Really appreciate it. And in advance, to thank the commentators who graciously put the time into uh, reading and thinking about my book. Um, when I first started musing about the constitutional status of lies in 2012, I didn't imagine the emergence of a president who would constantly lie about matters large and small, displaying a mind-numbing disconnection from facts and verifiable reality. In short, I could not imagine a Donald Trump. Trump's big, bold, repeated lies, told without blinking, made him a poster boy for a study of presidential lies, which was not where I had started out. So by the time I really turned in earnest to my work on lies about four years later, Trump's election in the very first days of his presidency brought issues of presidential mendacity to the fore. My book positions contemporary debates over verifiable truths and falsehoods and their impact on political discourse within classical First Amendment doctrine. Many other commentators on lies have not been lawyers and have not been constrained by the First Amendment when they propose remedies. The urgency of the issues we confront about truth and falsehood today accelerated throughout Trump's single term in office, leading me to frame a question very different from the one I had started out with. What, if anything, can be done to restrain a mendacious president without violating the First Amendment. The question remains pressing today as Trump and his supporters, including most of the Republican Party, persist in denying the reality that Biden won the 2020 election and is, in fact, president of the United States as we sit here today. I had finished the manuscript and was just about to send it to the publisher shortly before January 6th. I then had to step back and do a few more work, weeks of work, a few more months of work, uh, to bring this up to date through the January 6 events, the second impeachment, and the second Senate trial. And um, I completed the final set of proofs that I was allowed to edit just days before the Republicans in Congress scuttled the idea of a bipartisan inquiry into January 6. So it sort of falls off a cliff there. But um, later events and new disclosures coming almost weekly 
if not daily, I believe have only reinforced my arguments. So I began thinking about lies through the lens of the First Amendment in 2012 because that year, the Supreme Court for the first time directly considered the question of whether lies are protected by the Constitution. In United States versus Alvarez, the court considered a First Amendment, uh, an appeal based on a First Amendment from a conviction for falsely claiming to have won a Congressional Medal of Honor. A habitual liar and a minor office holder on a local water board in California, Xavier Alvarez um, didn't deny that he had falsely claimed this, and there was abundant evidence that he had and that he had done so repeatedly. But to the surprise of almost everyone, the court declined to add lies to the category of speech, categories of speech that fall outside the protections of the speech clause, categories you may be familiar with, like obscenity and defamation. The speech clause, it turns out, protects lies. So I'm going to make a few prefatory remarks before going into the meat. First, how do we define lies? I'm using a legal definition, not an ethical or moral definition, which could sweep far more broadly. The legal definition requires knowledge by the speaker that the statement is false and an intent to deceit. Intent is one of the hardest things to prove in a courtroom. And I'm focused on public lies, not the lies you might tell to an intimate partner or a friend or even uh, in a business deal, um, lies that are shared in public and are about matters of public concern. And the lies I want to zero in on are verifiable factual falsehoods, a very narrow category in the range of deception. And I touch on some of these other categories uh, in the course of my inquiry. But my focus is primarily on those verifiable factual falsehoods that I call bald-faced lies. My analysis reveals that the First Amendment poses an almost intractable obstacle to regulating even the most blatant public lies. Why would that be? It goes to the core values of the First Amendment reflected in the speech clause. Speech clause, as John mentioned, is, exists to protect dissidents. So if there's a paradigm shift in knowledge, uh, someone who's claiming something that people think is wrong might later be proven to be correct. Um, and to promote vigorous debate about politics and public policies, and to bar the government from becoming the arbiter of truth or the licensor of what can be said. But having found that, I also argue that First Amendment doctrine itself provides a path toward constraining lies by the highest government officials. And I conclude that only the lack of political will in a time of increasing fragmentation and hyperpartisanship and the denial of shared reality stands in the way of disciplining the highest government officials who repeatedly tell lies that harm the populace and the republic itself. Why does truth matter in public life? A large literature has shown that autocracies thrive on disinformation, denial of facts, attacks on legit legitimate news sources, and hostility to verifiable reality. 
These attacks on rationality create or reinforce dueling epistemic tribes, those words that you usually read but don't say all the time. Historically, the withering of truth contributes to the dismantling of democratic structures. In the US, the notion of a free marketplace of ideas, which is the organizing construct at the heart of classical free speech doctrine, is posited on the proposition that the truth will drive falsehood out of a free marketplace in robust political debate. But what if truth does not prevail? Frustration over political lies, lies in election campaigns and more, often leads commentators and members of the general public to say, there ought to be a law. But laws regulating most lies prove unconstitutional when challenged in court. As I show in a chapter that examines the regulations that roughly one third of our states today have on the books that impose penalties for lies during political campaigns. And although the Supreme Court in Alvarez failed to resolve several important doctrinal questions, we can discern some important principles from the three opinions, one of them a dissent by Justice Alito. First, the court rejects the government's claim that all verifiable factual falsehoods should be excluded from First Amendment protection categorically. Second, the opinion for the uh, plurality indicates that criminal penalties for, quote, mere falsehood without more violate the speech clause. So something more is required. And I explore what that something more may be, building on Justice Kennedy's proposition that it must involve either harm to others or a tangible benefit to the speaker. He doesn't put it quite so positively. He says, without more, because in this case, there is no harm to anyone or benefit to the speaker. So we can uh, read into that. And um, the court also clearly distinguishes between the concept that lies are protected speech and any claim that there is an affirmative constitutional right to lie. All the justices agreed there is no right to lie, although there may be protection for lies. Very different concepts. And between the lines, I, I find that to the extent that lies are protected, they seem to have less protected than other protection than other forms of speech. And we know this because the court refused to tell us what standard of constitutional review applies when lies are at issue. They do not apply strict scrutiny, which is the hardest standard of review to satisfy and the one that normally applies whenever the government regulates speech based on its content or its viewpoint. So now I turn to lies directly affecting democracy, which make up more than half the volume. In the rare instances when it appears the government might be able to permissibly regulate factual falsehoods, an additional array of pragmatic and constitutional issues arise. The pragmatic dilemmas include how we define a lie, how we recognize a lie, the timing of any restraint on falsehood for it to be effective, and perhaps most difficult, reaching a consensus about whether any given statement really amounts to a lie that can be attributed to the speaker. 
Even if all of those problems could be resolved, attempts at government regulation of falsehood hits a brick wall when it comes to enforcement of the regulation. However the state enforces such laws, whether in uh, agency hearings or in courtrooms, the, governor, the government becomes the arbiter of truth. Numerous judges and justices have found that the broad sensorial power that such laws accord to the government are comparable to 1984's Ministry of Truth. And they actually use that example. And many of you may recall that the Ministry of Truth actually promoted falsehoods. So justices of every political stripe have agreed our constitutional tradition has no place for Orwell's Ministry of Truth. And this brings me to the special case of mendacious presidents, which I look at from various vantage points, beginning with the uh, incomparable uh, consequences of presidential lies. They have a greater power to harm a large number of people than lies by other liars. They pollute the national discourse, and they violate the president's oath of office and his duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And here I rely on two case studies, uh, lies about COVID during the Trump administration and lies about the 2020 election. Each of these standing on its own more than satisfies the something more requirement of Alvarez. In a chapter devoted to COVID-19, I trace Trump's outright denials of verifiable truths, his bald-faced lies, and what I call explosive truths, admissions that prove knowledge and intent to lie. We learn more nearly every week about Trump's COVID lies and their impact, uh, such as recent uh, disclosures about the suppression of reliable science um, and the growing number of excess deaths that are now counted to be about 1 million rather than 750,000, as if 750,000 wasn't enough. In 2020, PolitiFact awarded Trump the lie of the year, not the first time he had garnered that honor. They called his coronavirus downplay and denial not just damaging but deadly. And those lies continue to divide the country over urgent public health measures. What if we had been able to cut Trump's lies about the pandemic short months before he left office? If that had happened, not only we would, would we have gotten back on uh, a better public health track, better vaccination track when that became possible, um, better uh, recovery, children going to school, etc., we might have avoided the worst of the 2020 election laws, which are scattered throughout the book uh, rather than in a separate chapter. The big lie about the legitimacy of the 2020 election began well in advance of election day and it continues today. The unfolding and amplification runs through the book, culminating in the January 6th insurrection and Trump's second impeachment, second trial, and second acquittal and what happened for a few months afterwards. The second impeachment trial brought presidential lies 
to the fore as a matter of constitutional law for the very first time, although the legal issue was not resolved there. Trump's lawyers had the audacity to claim that presidents have enhanced speech rights. That is a direct quote, enhanced speech rights as elected officials to say whatever they want free from accountability. And I refute that claim in detail, beginning with a look at the three other um, impeachment uh, processes um, since the Reconstruction, Nixon, who resigned before the House could impeach him, Clinton, and Trump's own first impeachment. The first count against Nixon in the bill of particulars released from the committee that led to his resignation when confronted by members of his own party was making false or misleading statements for the purpose of deceiving the people about the Watergate break-in. And that was never analyzed from a First Amendment perspective because he resigned. Clinton was charged with lying under oath in a civil deposition, which he did, not with lying to the public, but his false public denials gained him a reputation as a liar that infected the entire proceedings. Trump was not charged with lying to the public when he was impeached for the first time over his attempted extortion of the Ukrainian president, though he too had lied to the public, calling the conversation perfect and trying to obstruct inquiries into the phone call. During the second Senate trial, Trump didn't deny his lies about the election. His lawyers claimed Trump's words, quote, fell well within the norms of political speech protected by the First Amendment and that he had that enhanced speech right. Trump went far beyond Nixon's self-exculpatory lies. He inspired an armed mob to attack the government, to attempt to prevent the peaceful transition of power and to undermine the Constitution itself. So now we reach the crux of my argument and my proposal. I set out a path for constraining mendacious presidents without violating First Amendment rights. And here I argue that the president does not have enhanced rights. In fact, he has fewer First Amendment rights than almost anyone because he is a public employee. And here I use a special nook within First Amendment law that governs the speech of public employees. The president works for us, we the people. And the people who are charged with overseeing his job performance are the members of Congress, starting with the House of Representatives. Under this line of cases, public employees can be disciplined or even fired for their speech outside of work with no recourse to First Amendment claims unless the employee can show that they spoke as a private citizen and that they spoke about a matter of public concern. They must show both of those prongs. No question that when presidents speak, they're almost always talking about a matter of public concern, but they can't even reach that part of the test because they almost never speak as private citizens. Presidential expression fails the first part of the test and prevents and that prevents presidents from claiming any 
freedom of expression in the face of discipline for their job performance by Congress. The legal test of whether a public employee speaks as an employee and not a private citizen is whether their speech is related to the scope of their employment. And the scope of employment is defined extremely broadly in this line of cases. Examining the indicii of office, where the president speak, uh, who is surrounding them when they speak, how their speech is covered across a range of statements, I, I show that just about everything the president says in public is related to the scope of the president's employment. No court has ever actually addressed whether the president is a public employee under the Constitution, contrary to popular opinion uh, among lawyers. Because the few times that the issue has arisen, the court has been focused on interpreting a specific statute that defined who is a public employee for purposes of that statute alone and who it reaches. And even looking at statutory interpretation, most recently, the Department of Justice under both Trump and Biden asserted a very broad definition of the scope of presidential duties in the defamation case brought by E. Jean Carroll, where they said it was part of the scope of duties. And this is uh, really insane. It would be one of the only uh, exceptions I would make to my proposition that the president always speaks you know, as a public employee. The, what their argument amounts to is that part of the president's duties is to defame a private individual. That defies logic. But that opens up a, a lot of support for my much narrower claim. And uh, the, what is the advantage of treating the president as a public employee? There's no need for discipline to rest on lying, much less to rely on the legal definition of lies. And that means that we don't have to show either knowledge that you're telling a lie or intent to deceive. There is simply no free speech defense. So I propose a narrow definition of the kind of presidential lies that Congress should subject to discipline. And then I explain how that discipline fits within the constitutional structure. Here's my definition. A continuing pattern of material, verifiable false statements of fact that harm the body politic or the well-being of the American people. I'm aiming for a sweet spot, not too broad, not too narrow, not chilling too much speech that we should respect, and certainly underscoring that differences of opinion or uh, matters of politics should never be construed as lies for this purpose. I'm talking about verifiable, factual falsehoods. And it needs to be a continuing pattern. I'm not interested in a gotcha for a one-time statement or a misstatement. And I also offer the president a chance to retract when confronted with evidence that what the president said is verifiably false. I do entertain, but don't examine, a possible exception for national security, which has been an exception since the days of the early republic. And this brings us to the ultimate penalty impeachment and how we get there. The founders presciently thought that high character was essential for an executive because they feared that a person of low character 
might aim to become a tyrant. And they provided a remedy, impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors. That's our failsafe. What are high crimes and misdemeanors? This has been the subject of many books and many congressional inquiries. Doesn't require an illegal act. Indeed, these are violations a criminal code would not be expected to reach, a violation of public trust, or as Charles Black explained, behavior which is plainly wrong to a person of honor or to a good citizen. Congress has the ultimate and only authority to determine what high crimes and misdemeanors means. And generally, they consider it anew with each impeachment, looking at non-binding precedents they have established. I urge that Congress should put future presidents on notice that moving forward, it will consider a continuing pattern of material, verifiable false statements of fact that harm the body politic or the well-being of the American people to fall within the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors. And they can do that without in any way limiting their power to find that other violations of trust also are impeachable offenses. What's the point of that? What would it accomplish, you might wonder? It should short circuit debate about whether lying is impeachable, whether a First Amendment defense is available. It should answer and put down the notion that presidents have enhanced speech rights and make it clear that there is no First Amendment defense here. Um, so then Congress just has to grapple with a narrower but still difficult question. Are these verifiable falsehoods? But I'm not suggesting that impeachment be our first mode of action. Indeed, as we've seen, numerous obstacles exist to impeaching, convicting, and removing a president. Instead, I envision various procedures that Congress uses regularly that can escalate in severity and that they should use all the tools at their disposal, beginning with notice, oversight hearings, and censure, none of which have real teeth. They're not real penalties. But in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court underscored that congressional oversight gains teeth through the implicit threat of impeachment. Impeachment underlies all of those steps. Uh, now, granted, uh, Fitzgerald was decided in the early 80s and a very different political climate. I hope that climate may someday be restored. But a mendacious president who is impervious to those smaller slaps on the wrist should then be impeached under the public employee doctrine. Imagine if Congress had impeached Trump and the Senate proved willing to convict when he unleashed a torrent of lies about electoral legitimacy early in 2020, or when he floated postponing the election that summer, or when he undermined the peaceful transition of power after refusing to accept the electoral college vote and falsely claimed victory as he tweeted, hashtag overturn. If they had done so at any point before the January 6th insurrection, or how many lies, lives and other tragedies might have been saved um, if he had been impeached for lying about COVID. Unfortunately, the remedy I propose can't reach a former president who would appear to have greater First Amendment protection, the First Amendment protection the Constitution uh, accords 
to all the liars in the country. And that perspective change of regime um, provides even greater impetus for Congress to act while the prodigious liar remains in office, especially if, like Trump, the former president might continue to claim executive authority while seeking a restoration. Conviction and disqualification for future office seem imperative under those circumstances, which were once unimaginable, but are now our reality. And I have just a few caveats in closing, because I see I'm up to zero minutes. Um, I acknowledge that in the current climate, there is little to zero chance of my proposal being enacted in the immediate future, but I'd like to add it to the pile of suggestions for reform that generally follow a constitutional crisis like this one. And even if my proposal were adopted, it would still be very hard to reach agreement about what amounts to a bald-faced lie. But I've established that when it comes to lying presidents and other high officials, the First Amendment does not stand in the way of constraining dangerous falsehoods. The problem lies in a lack of political will, a greater concern in some quarters with power and party than with country, and in ourselves, the citizens. That's rare in, in our debates that uh, suggests the fault lies somewhere other than blind officials or bad elected and so on. That's, that's very good. I, um, we try to do things here. We try to say things that no one else says, and I think she just did, in the sense of uh, the fault may be in our, not in our stars, but in ourselves, dear Horatio. Um, I did forget to mention, though, uh, although already some of our online audience has started to submit questions, uh, you can do that directly online to our online audience. You can do that directly on the event webpage, or you can do it on Twitter at uh, hashtag Cato1A. Our first commentator will be James Fifner, who is University Professor of Public Policy at George Mason University. His major areas of expertise is are the presidency, American national government, and public management interrelated uh, topics. He has lectured on these topics at universities in Europe and throughout the United States, as well as the Federal Executive Institute, National War College, U.S. Military Academy, the State Justice and Defense Departments. He has written or edited a dozen books on the presidency and American national government, including uh, the strategic presidency, hitting the ground running, and power play, the Bush presidency, and the Constitution, which I, has a similar title to one of my colleague Gene Healy's uh, uh, articles on Bush, and then a similar uh, PA that was done later, a small book on the Obama administration. Professor Fifner has been a panel member or, project, or on project staffs of the Volcker Commission, National Academy of Public Administration, which he is an elected member, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and the National Academy of Science. He has received a Distinguished Faculty Award at, at George Mason University. And finally, while serving with the 25th Infantry Division, uh, in 1970, he received the Army Commendation of Medal for Valor in Vietnam and Cambodia. Welcome to the Cato Institute, Professor Fifthman. Thank you very much, 
uh, John, and I'd like to thank the Cato Institute for inviting me to, to make some comments on uh, Professor Ross's uh, book and to provide some uh, observations of my own. <clears throat> I think that this forum is really focused on some of the most important and dangerous developments uh, facing the United States as a constitutional republic, and that may seem like hyperbole, but the issues uh, that are that cost of what constitutes fact and truth are reach fundamental uh, foundations of democracy and, and limited government. First, some comments on Professor Ross's book. This is an impressive and an excellent book. I especially like the way that she dealt with the nuances of the First Amendment with analytical rigor uh, and, and legal insight. She pre prevent, presents wonderful illustrations to make her point. She mentioned the Alvarez uh, case in which the Stolen Valor Act, which says that you can't claim to be a, uh, have a Congressional Medal of Honor, uh, was illegal. Uh, I mean, that the, the it said that it was illegal to do that, and the act was declared unconstitutional. She explains that very clearly. It's not obvious off the top of your head why that would be, but she explains it well. Another case, uh, she looks at uh, how Michael Gableman was elected to the Wisconsin Supreme Court after a, a campaign of very crude and seriously misleading advertising, uh, and she she says, you know, the, the, the facts were stipulated in the case, but still uh, it could not be proven. He, he, got, he got away with it. So you really need to read this book in order to appreciate the richness of her analysis, her analysis and it's well worth, <coughs> very well worth reading. Uh, she points to the threats of uh, democracy and constitutionalism presented by Trump, a very good um, uh, chapter on COVID uh, and how it, it, his lies led to thousands of unnecessary uh, deaths uh, deaths. Uh, I particularly liked her term epistemic tribalism, uh, in which the right and the left seem to have different criteria for judging reality, <clears throat> and which is different uh, from disagreeing about public policy or the role of government, which have been the basis for legitimate disagreement between uh, political parties for throughout our, our history. I applaud her for her optimism in suggesting congressional uh, remedies for serious presidential lying, though I'm a bit skeptical of the possibility of success. <clears throat> In sum, I'm impressed with her uh, systematic analysis of the First Amendment and presidential lies. Uh, she carefully lays out the danger in the types of lies that Donald Trump has told. And I'm sympathetic to her proposed remedies, although I'm skeptical if they can achieve, uh, be achieved in the current uh, political uh, atmosphere. <clears throat> Shifting focus, uh, I'll present some ideas about presidential lies from my research over the past uh, couple of decades. First, a taxonomy of pre presidential lies in the 20th century, and then I'll distinguish those from Donald Trump's lies. Now, of course, everybody lies. Society would fall apart uh, if, if that were not so. <clears throat> but president's lies, presidential lies have much greater consequences, uh, as Professor Ross explained very clearly. Now, some people take the view that all politicians lie, so why bother? Uh, they all do it. But that's a cynical uh, and morally unacceptable. As citizens, we've got to decide which lies are important and, and others and make judgments about politicians uh, <coughs> based on, in part, on their uh, truthfulness. And so in my research, I've tried to distinguish important lies uh, from less important lies. <coughs> So after President Clinton's impeachment for lying, I decided to look systematically at modern presidential lies. So this is back in the 20th century. And so I scoured history books and contemporary accounts to find presidential lies. And I really did have to do some research on this. It wasn't like obvious like for the last four years. And I came up with a taxonomy. Okay, first of all, justifiable lies to protect national security. And we can all imagine those sorts of things. Uh, for instance, if John Kennedy were asked about missiles, asked by the press about missiles in Cuba before it became public, 
public, he would have been justified in lying in 1962. In April 1980, uh, Jimmy Carter, if he were asked about the planned hostage uh, rescue uh, mission uh, in Iran, he would have been justified in lying about it. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Uh, you might remember, well, some of you may remember, uh, Jimmy Carter in 1976 uh, said, I will never lie to you, contrasting himself with Richard Nixon. But this uh, promise was, e was either naive or opportunistic. If he could not imagine a situation in which he would have to lie to protect national security, he was extremely naive. But if he was merely being opportunistic, wanting to uh, draw a contrast uh, with Nixon, he was dissembling. That is, he was lying in order to say that he would not lie. Okay, a second, uh, uh, justifiable lies, moving to trivial lies. Uh, Lyndon Johnson claimed that his great-great-grandfather died at the Alamo. Well, Doris Kearns Goodwin did the research. He didn't. Uh, Kennedy claimed that he could read a 1,000 words a minute. Uh, he couldn't. And here's an interesting uh, Ronald Reagan story. Ronald Reagan uh, told an interesting story, even though it was uh, trivial in a sense. Uh, he told the story that when he was in Dixon High School in Illinois, they he was uh, on the football team <clears throat> playing against uh, arch-rival Mendota. Uh, and, and Reagan caught a pass, or the ref... Uh, ruled that Reagan caught a complete pass, but Reagan uh, said that uh, he actually hadn't. Uh, and so, the tr he, quoting Reagan, the truth had been wailed into me, so I told the truth, uh, and Dixon lost that game. And his honesty led to the uh, 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 loss. But Lou Cannon, Reagan's best biographer, uh, looked into this very carefully and found out that when Reagan was on the varsity, the only game that they played with Mendota, Mendota won 24 to 0. So this is an interesting irony. Uh, Reagan was telling a lie in order to make the point that he was honest uh, and how important it is uh, to be truthful. Question, is it okay to tell a lie in order to encourage truthfulness? Reagan also said that he had photographed Nazi death camp, uh, camps in Europe after, during World War II, or right after World War II, but he spent World War II in Los Angeles. He was not uh, in, in Europe. Okay, <clears throat> trivialized moving. Lies to cover up important facts. And here, uh, the Eisenhower, the U-2 incident. Eisenhower had sent a U-2 to take pictures of, uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, and Khrushchev then accused uh, the United States of spying. Uh, and Eisenhower thought, well, Gary Powers, you know, that U-2 is pretty, uh, they, they assured, the engineers assured him uh, that Powers would have died uh, had, had the U-2 crashed. Uh, there was one problem, though. Uh, Khrushchev had Gary Powers, as he said, alive and kicking. So Ike was mortified. Uh, he felt that he had breached the public trust, and he said uh, to his secretary, I would like to resign. Now, of course, that was another era, as you can uh, imagine. So he, he finally admitted it publicly. He could have blamed a subordinate, uh, but he didn't. Uh, so that, you know, that was uh, clearly a lie. Uh, <clears throat> interesting, uh, the flights were no secret to the Soviets or our allies. They knew about them. They were only secret to Congress uh, and the American people. <clears throat> uh, another a lie to cover of important facts, uh, Nixon and the Watergate, the smoking gun tape, uh, where Nixon tells Haldeman, to go to the FBI uh, and tell them that if they follow the Watergate money, they're going to expose, expose the CIA operation. Of course, that, that was false. Uh, also, Nixon backdated his tax documents in order to take illegal tax deductions for his vice presidential papers. Uh, that was Nixon. Uh, George H.W. Bush said that he was out of the loop and did not know about arms sales to Iran. Uh, George Shultz's book makes it very clear that he knew about it. Uh, and, of course, Clinton uh, lied uh, about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, of course, it was 
was under oath, and that, and that was serious. But the fourth category, uh, which was the worst one that I you know, imagined back in the 20th century, uh, was lies of policy uh, deception. And a couple of examples here. Nixon's secret bombing of Cambodia in 1969. This was a very elaborate uh, falsification of records. Uh, the B-52s would be set, sent up with some, uh, certain coordinates to hit and then changed in the middle of the flight uh, to pl uh, places in Cambodia. Even the Secretary of the Air Force uh, did not know about it. Another, again, another irony, the North Vietnamese knew, the Cambodians knew, uh, but the U.S. public and Congress did not know about it. Lyndon Johnson, of course, uh, lied about the Tonkin Gulf, the second attack in the Tonkin Gulf. He soon realized that it did not take place. It was not true, but he did use it to get the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. He also uh, systematically lied about the buildup of U.S. troops in the spring of 19, in summer of 1965. The best source of this is H.R. McMaster's book, Dereliction of Duty, which I highly recommend. <clears throat> And Reagan, of course, uh, lied about sending arms uh, to Iran in exchange for hostages, uh, later facing uh, proof that, that he had, uh, that he, had uh, he finally admitted it. Uh, also, in the lead up to the Iraq war, moving into the 21st century, um, uh, Bush, Cheney, uh, and Cheney seriously misled the country with respect uh, to the war in Iraq, particularly the link between Saddam and al-Qaeda. Both the CIA and the FBI said that there was no link, uh, yet they insisted on it. Uh, Cheney and Scooter Libby went out to Langley to try to, to, to lean on uh, the analysts out there to tell them uh, that, that they had to uh, come up with some troop uh, some uh, proof of that. Uh, of course, they couldn't. It didn't happen. Also, Bush's patterns of statement about Saddam's nuclear capacity uh, were systematically misleading. Uh, the aluminum tubes, which were supposedly suitable as nuclear centrifuges, uh, uh, the, the engineers at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, those are the people that make nuclear centrifuges. The Department of Energy disagreed about that in, in the uh, 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 briefing to uh, President Bush, he ignored it. And of course, yellow cake from Niger uh, to Iraq was easily or early uh, um, exposed uh, as, as a fraud. He also said uh, Iraq had uh, their UAVs uh, could attack the United States. Of course, the United States Air Force didn't think so, and they also wrote that in the memo uh, to, to, uh, uh, to Bush. And I'll turn now to Donald Trump's lies, which makes most earlier presidential lies look quaint. Uh, his lies do not easily fit into the types of uh, lies that earlier presidents were told. But first of all, uh, some trivial lies, uh, many self-aggrandizing lies, uh, which were conventional and relatively trivial. Uh, it, oh, incidentally, um, I, I use a much tighter uh, criteria to judge lies than the Washington Post does uh, with their 12,000 lies. I mean, they're a very useful uh, 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 compilation of misstatements, uh, lies, and so forth by, uh, by President Trump. Uh, I only count lies that were clearly contrary to well-known facts, what, uh, what Professor Ross calls bald-faced lies. <clears throat> oh, for instance, okay, in the relatively trivial category, uh, that he said that he was on the cover of Time magazine more than any other person. Well, not true. He said more than a million people were at his inaugura inauguration, which you remember, not true. Uh, he said he had the largest increase in military spending in history, uh, clearly not true. He said that he had signed more laws than anybody, in reality, fewer laws than, than anybody since uh, President Truman. <clears throat> okay, now, no, two key differences between these trivial lies and the trivial lies of, of uh, previous presidents. 
these lies were easily disproved immediately. The others, you know, I had to do a lot of research. I had to look at historians, what they were writing about and so forth, to dig out those lies and uh, demonstrate that they were really, uh, and document that they were, uh, they were not true. Uh, different from Trump, which these things clearly, you could read the paper in the next day and find out that they were not true. Uh, and also, secondly, Trump continued to repeat these lies after they were debunked. And I think that that is a very uh, sinister sort of thing to continue to tell these lies uh, after uh, they've been exposed as lies. Okay, second uh, category in, in Trump's lies, lies intended to, to uh, deceive the public. Uh, he said, of course, he won the popular vote in 2016 election, and of course, Hillary Clinton had three million more votes uh, that, than he did. Uh, he said that unemployment in the United States was 42 percent. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics said it was 5.3 percent. <clears throat> now, it's, it's one thing to challenge the economic uh, methodology used to, to determine the data. It's another thing to flat out lie about it and don't explain uh, uh, your, your reasoning, why you think it's 42 percent as opposed to 5.3 percent. <clears throat> he said the United States is the highest tax nation in the world. Uh, in fact, it's one of the lowest. Uh, in 2018, he, you know, Go figure. Uh, he told U.S. troops in Iraq that they were getting a 10% pay raise. Well, they actually got 2.6%. Why would he tell that to people who were going to look at their paychecks and realize that it was a lie? Uh, Trump, go figure. Okay, and then the, the third category, uh, egregious lies, which are even worse than bald-faced lies. Um, he said he watched thousands of Muslims celebrating 9-11 uh, 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 There's no uh, evident, evidence uh, uh, for this. Uh, and, of course, the, the birther, li birther lie, which I call the ERLI of the Trump, of, of President Trump, <clears throat> that Obama was not born in the United States, uh, you know, I mean, that got a lot of traction. A lot of people believed it. He also said Obama founded ISIS. Now, okay, you're saying, what? This doesn't make sense. Uh, it, it sounds silly. Uh, but it's true. Hugh Hewitt was interviewing him. He, he's a conservative commentator, uh, had been head of Office of Personnel Management. And Hewitt tried to let him wiggle out. He said, well, what you probably mean is Obama was careless and allowed ISIS. To, and Trump said several times, no, I, uh, Trump, uh, I mean, Obama founded ISIS. Um, also, you know, July 16, uh, during the campaign, 2016, said he had never spoken with Vladimir Putin. Uh, but in 2014, he said that he had spoken directly to Putin. I mean, both of these cannot be true. <clears throat> okay, so those are just illustrations of, of some of the lies, and there's many, many more. Uh, but most importantly, I think, uh, and this is where I think Trump's lies are uh, truly insidious, uh, even after his bald-faced lies were debunked, he continued to repeat them. Uh, as we know from rigorous psychological research, people often believe lies. Uh, and once they are embedded in people's mind, it is difficult to dislodge this information. Now, I mean, I, I cite a bunch of uh, psychological research uh, about people being told or reading the newspaper X and then very clearly um, uh, demonstrating that it's not true, and people tend still to believe it. And it's a, a psychological reality, but there's, there's hard social science evidence behind it. And that's, of course, part of why Trump's lies are so, so dangerous. Um, okay, so uh, I submit that Trump's lies are worse than any previous presidential lies, even policy deception lies, because Trump's lies undermine the fundamental principles of the Enlightenment. That is, uh, that there, the Enlightenment, that there is an external reality that is not determined by magic or religion, uh, that there are objective facts 
that these facts are discoverable through rational investigation by, by presenting empirical evidence and using the scientific method. Now, the premise of representative democracy, or indeed any type of accountable government, is that there, are so, there is some fundamental reality or commonly accepted set of facts uh, that provide the basis for deliberation and choices about governance and policies. Now, it's entirely reasonable to disagree about the, the methods by which the facts are discovered, the way that the data are gathered, how heavily to weigh certain facts, how to interpret the implication of those facts. But as Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. Uh, in her book, uh, Professor Ross quotes Joseph Goebbels, uh, Hitler's minister of propaganda, uh, if, saying, quote, if you tell a lie big enough, people, uh, and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. So in closing, I would like to quote Adolf Hitler, Hannah Arndt, Lewis Carroll, and Timothy Snyder. <clears throat> in Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote, in the big lie, there is always a certain force of credibility because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted. They more easily fall victims to the big lie than the small lie, since they themselves often tell small lies. It would never come to the, into their head to fabricate colossal untruths, and they would not believe that others could have the impudence uh, to distort the truth so infamously. Uh, Hannah Arndt, in The Origins of Totalitarianism, wrote, before the mass leaders seize the power to fit reality to their lies, their propaganda is marked by its extreme contempt for facts as such, for in their opinion, fact depends entirely on the power of the man who can fabricate it. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but the people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction no longer exists. Lewis Carroll, through the looking glass, Humpty Dumpty says to Alice, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Alice says, replies, the question is whether you can make words mean so many different things. Humpty Dempsey says, the question is which is to be master, that is all. And finally, on, on, in On Tyranny, uh, Timothy uh, uh, Snyder uh, uh, concludes uh, that post-truth is pre-fascism. Now, uh, if, if anybody would like documentation on any of this stuff, just send me an email, piffner at gmu.edu. I'd be glad to send you all the documentation. Thank you. I will now propose the pre-question before the final, the third commentator. Are you ready, professors? Who's to say? Come on, who's to say? That'll be, that'll come up later. It's kind of a joke. Uh, Sorry. Um, Will Duffield, however, it is true, is Will Duffield is a policy analyst in Cato's Center for Representative Government, where he studies speech and internet governance. His research focuses on the web of government regulation, private roles that govern America's uh, speech, American speech online. Duffield recently contributed a chapter on internet decentralization to libertarianism.org's Visions of Liberty. And his work has appeared at Cato Journal, Volta Face, uh, and the Adam Smith Institute uh, prior to w becoming a policy analyst, who's my research assistant. Uh, he received a BA from St. Lawrence College and completed an MS in political theory at the very fine London School of Economics. Will, I don't have to welcome you to Cato, but welcome to the Opus. In A Right to Lie, Presidents, Other Liars, and the First Amendment, 
Professor Ross does an excellent job of explaining how and why the First Amendment protects lies. This second aspect, the why, is of tremendous practical importance. At a time when disinformation abounds, and almost everyone can find something that they know to be false on their social media feed, concerns about lies cannot be dispelled by simple invocations of the First Amendment. Yes, the First Amendment protects lies, but why? In case after case, Ross peers under the jurisprudential hood to explain why attempting to regulate lies would cause unintended or perverse outcomes. Going beyond Kant's axe murderer or hypotheticals about lying to the Gestapo, Ross illustrates how lies play a role in social as well as political life, saying, lies allow us to experiment with different personae for public presentation, to reimagine ourselves in varied social contexts, or to explore what we want out of life. She uses the variety and ubiquity of lies to show how government efforts to regulate them flounder. Which lies matter? How certain must we be that a claim is false before we can prohibit? Who must be certain? That's that, that who decides there that John was bringing up. Absent convincing answers to these questions, it becomes clear that outside of limited categories of lies, such as fraud, government lacks the ability to effectively sort fact from fiction and punish liars. What emerges is a rather humble and, dare I say, a libertarian right to lie. It is not a positive right defended as an unalloyed good, quite the opposite. A right to lie is the necessary alternative to a ministry of truth. Absent to right to lie, government might erroneously or maliciously suppress the truth. Not trusting government to do this, we end up with a residual right to lie. Going further, Ross explains why even bald-faced lies about political candidates should receive protection, offering a taxonomy of political lies. Politicians or other speakers may tell, quote, bald-faced lies about any candidate, intentional distortions that can be disproven, hyperbole that is too subtle to be immediately recognizable as not offering any believable facts, and prevarication. To prohibit only bald-faced lies would leave other, more subtle forms of falsity alone, seeming to solve the problem of truth in campaigning without actually doing so, essentially providing a false sense of security. She writes, the existing campaign deception laws fall short of solving the problem when they target only bald-faced lies about opponents. They cannot promote the integrity of the electoral process if they fail to constrain the other kinds of lies to which candidates can pivot with great effect. These lessons can be applied to current efforts to regulate lies on the internet. In 2018, Senator Claire McClaskill introduced a bill criminalizing false claims of political endorsement, such as claims that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump as a candidate for president. Setting aside the entirely legitimate concern that such a power might be misused, it would be hard to enforce consistently and even-handedly, even with the best of intentions. The false Pope endorsement was originally published by a National Enquirer-style hoax website. It was not, seemingly, published to intentionally deceive or to boost support for Donald Trump. 
a sister site ran a similar story about the Pope endorsing Hillary Clinton. Yet, had McCaskill's bill become law, government would be tasked with determining the truth of such stories. It might suppress outright claims of endorsement while allowing the publication of more subtle claims of implied support. What about negative claims of endorsement, such as efforts to link Virginia gubernatorial candidate Glenn Youngkin to Donald Trump? Can government legitimately draw a line here? And would doing so imperfectly provide that false sense of integrity? As Ross writes, even if a regulatory scheme survives strict scrutiny, it could still prove virtually impossible for regulators to agree about where the boundaries between truth and falsehood should be drawn. More recently, Senator Amy Klobuchar proposed a bill to regulate lies about health or health misinformation on social media. The bill would empower the Secretary of Health and Human Services to deem certain speech health misinformation and expose social media platforms to liability for lawsuits related to speech so designated. This immediately raises Ministry of Truth concerns. If the Health and Human Services Secretary can designate disfavored speech, health misinformation, at will, the power to censor health misinformation might be used as a general power to censor. This is at odds with our constitutional tradition. As Ross notes, justices of every political stripe agree. It is perilous to permit the state to be the arbiter of truth. Even if only applied narrowly to health claims, such, as a power to such a power to censor could do tremendous harm. Imagine if, in the early days of COVID, claims of asymptomatic spread had been barred as provocative misinformation. How might this power have been misused during the AIDS epidemic? More broadly, while a right to lie effectively explains why legislative efforts to suppress lies fail to pass constitutional muster, I am concerned that in its laser focus on the many lies of now former President Donald Trump, the book's final section proposes a solution uniquely tailored to a novel problem. Impeachment might have been a solution to Trump's lies, but it cannot be brought to bear on more common and potentially even more dangerous executive branch lies. Ross argues, I think convincingly, that we have good reason to hold the president to the same standards as other public employees. The president's speech is potentially more capable of swaying the public than that of other public employees, and therefore all the more dangerous if false. There are, of course, good reasons one might view this differently. Elected officials and political appointees might be seen as inherently less trustworthy than career civil servants who serve the country across multiple administrations. However, despite the public employee speech doctrine, which gives government the power to regulate speech by civil servants, there are no general statutory prohibitions on lies by public employees. Government employees may be punished for voicing their personal opinions when they conflict with, that conflict with or violates official policy. But this power seems used to restrain truth-telling and whistleblowing as much as it is employed to prevent public employees from misinforming citizens. Ross examines the cases of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, passed over for promotion for his testimony in the 2020 impeachment hearings, and LA County Deputy District Attorney Ceballos, punished for revealing a flawed basis for a warrant to illustrate how the public speech employee doctrine can restrain truth-telling 
as much as it can punish lies by civil servants. Indeed, the most dangerous lies told by public officials are not spread by individuals acting on their own initiative, but lies that make their way into policy. Just as top-down misinformation is usually more dangerous than bottom-up lies because they come from more trustworthy or believable sources, whole-of-government lies are more dangerous than those of any one individual, president or not. While the problem of Trump's lies, or the lies of any other president, may be addressed via elections, or, as Ross suggests, impeachment, when lies make their way into policy, they can be more difficult to, to uproot, and their harms sap trust in government writ large, rather than in any one passing executive office holder. When the pandemic began, the CDC and WHO discouraged mass masking, even contending despite the experiences of Southeast Asian countries, that there was no evidence masks prevented the transmission of the coronavirus. This claim was sometimes, incredibly, paired with requests to preserve masks for healthcare workers. In February of 2020, Surgeon General Jerome Adams tweeted, seriously people, stop buying masks. They are not effective in preventing the general public from catching coronavirus, but if healthcare providers can't get them to care for sick patients, it puts them and our communities at risk. If masks aren't effective in preventing the transmission of the coronavirus, why would healthcare workers need them? Healthcare workers have special training, not special genes or immune systems. As Zainab Tufexi puts it, how do these masks magically protect the wearers only and only if they work in a particular field? Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Infectious Diseases, later explained the messaging thusly. We were concerned, the public health community, and many people were saying this, were concerned that it was a time when personal protective equipment, including the N95 masks and the surgical masks, were in short supply. This is not a recognition of error about the science of masking. Indeed, early evidence of asymptomatic spread seemed to be ignored out of hand, but about, the messaging, but about messaging in the face of scarcity. This is a justification for the official lie that masks didn't work. This lie might have been told for the best of reasons, but it was nevertheless told and did great harm. The official lie that masks don't work discouraged early masking, leading to unnecessary loss of life. Ross writes that scientific models projected that tens of thousands of lives could have been saved if at least 95% of Americans had worn masks in public. This early maladvice also, in a sense, poisoned the well, making it more difficult for Americans to trust later official masking advice and the advice of state health authorities more generally. While Ross asks, what if there had been a way to cut the president's lies short months before he left office? This solution fails to grapple with the fact that one of the most dangerous lies of the Trump presidency was, as spread, was spread as much by executive branch agencies and career civil servants as the president himself. We might blame Trump for failing to prevent these official lies. Ross writes, if the president fails to correct high officers when they tell verifiable falsehoods or does not correct the public record, the agent's acts and words can also be attributed to the president. Quite worryingly, however, Trump's absence would not have prevented this noble lie. Further complicating matters, fact-checkers at USA Today 
have rated stories about these false early masking claims of maladvice as missing context. The missing context being that Adams, Fauci, and the CDC later reversed their initial claims about the inefficacy of masking. Other fact checkers refer to these statements as a mistake. It seems that when enough people buy into a lie, government or otherwise, they can be difficult to ever recognize as such. False official claims about the presence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or that country's links to Al-Qaeda, repeated by the media, are retrospectively cast as mistakes or intelligence failures. This tendency makes it difficult to learn from the most dangerous government lies. They are simply too inconvenient to too many people to ever fully recognize as such. At best, they become sources of partisan division, lies recognized by one party, but not the other. This is a far larger issue that Ross hints at, but never fully leaps into or attempts to resolve. Are Americans too divided about the basic facts of political life to come to agreement or even engage in productive discourse? Are Democrats and Republicans voting for different policies or for which claim to the truth will receive official legitimation? She writes, in theory, when the facts that expose the falsehoods are a matter of public record, no ambiguity should remain for a president to hide behind. In a country that, conceitedly, in a country that appears to be divided over the very nature of established facts, in which many prefer what Trump's senior counselor, Kellyanne Conway, called, quote, alternative facts, even that elemental level of agreement may prove unattainable. And going on, in the face of an increasing disconnect between verifiable facts and political discourse, a lack of embarrassment about outright fabrication, and a divide between voters who appear to be operating based on completely different sets of facts, it is reasonable to ask why our society allows such pervasive falsehoods affecting our most critical shared decision-making to flourish without restraint. Paradoxically, this epistemic divide gives us another reason to refrain from regulating lies. In the face of such partisan disagreements about the facts, suppression and censorship simply are not viable solutions. If the ha half the population wholeheartedly believes a lie, suppressing it will only fuel their sense of grievance. Instead, the only way forward seems to be to better cultivate widely trusted sources of knowledge and truth. This is not an easy solution. It is far easier to lose legitimacy and trust than it is to build it. Legacy gatekeepers have struggled to adapt to the internet. Media is often derided as partisan and often behaves in a partisan manner and may be unduly deferential to government when independence matters most, particularly on matters of war and foreign policy. Nevertheless, after reading A Right to Lie, I'm even more convinced that the restoration of trustworthy, non-governmental sources of truth remain the only way to promote integrity and trust in American political life. So now we go to the question. Uh, and let me start by apologizing to our online audience. Uh, we had a period 
which is why I left. We had a period where the, the live stream was down. I'm not sure it's uh, completely understood why that happened, but we very much are sorry for that, uh, and we'll try to get to, uh, and so you didn't hear part of it uh, toward the end there. So very much sorry about that. We're going to question and answers, uh, and we can have questions here. Uh, and if you uh, want to ask a question, please uh, come to the microphone. And yes, don't remove your mask until you get to the microphone and speak directly into it. But let me begin by asking a question that goes back to the my uh, semi-joke there about who's to say. There is certainly something in our, uh, in, in what, in, and I was, Professor Fistner's comment about the Enlightenment, I think, is very true because the Enlightenment is based on the notion that human reason could overcome all sorts of problems and could discern truth and make human life better. That was a very pragmatic thing, too. There's certainly been something in my adult life, in the intellectual life, that does put who's to say that is a very great deal of skepticism. Or, you know, a famous, one, maybe the most famous philosopher of my lifetime has a book whose title is Knowledge Power, Knowledge Slash Power, which is Michel Foucault, right? And Foucault's argument is everything is about power, right? It's an old argument, but he made it cool because he was French and, or something like that. But the old, the old argument is there's no truth. There is just what is told to you by the powerful, and they make up lies to, to tell you that. So if they're, who's to say? Well, they're not. You're supposed to doubt that. And of course, that has now become spread across the uh, political spectrum to where when you talk about, for example, the, we saw this early, the, uh, in, uh, the inauguration crowd, right? Uh, so you showed photos or whatever as truth. Then the question became, who was showing it to you, right? That uh, there was. So the you really focused in some ways on the, the idea that the truth doesn't. We don't experience truth. We are told truth by sources, and do you trust the source? And that was Foucault's point too. You can't trust the source, right? So in the appeals to facts are you know, plausible, right? It's a fact that if I climb to the top of the Cato Institute building and assert I can fly, I will rapidly find out that I cannot, that it's not a fact that, that someone lied to me. But as one of our uh, people online says, you know, what is it, uh, you know, how is it possible to, when you have lots of disagreement, not so much about what's truth, but about who's telling us what's truth, that uh, you can have agreement or prevent lies on uh, to the public on substantial matters. When these, how can this just not become a political question? And then you add that kind of cultural thing about, as I said, who's to say? Now, I don't like to be despairing or or, or difficult, but I'm suggesting there's a cultural problem underneath all of that, and it's very. I, I don't like it because it's against what you said. It's it's post enlightenment. It's it's the enlightenment is bad or something. 
do you have a, does this bear on you, or am I, am I off of what you've said, or am I off base, or do you have any answers? If you if you have some sources on that, for I, truth, I think I'll the, be happy to hear. The question of who decides is we, uh, as rational citizens, and we should use, do that by using reason and evidence. Now, it's certainly true uh, in Foucault's case or Nazi Germany. Uh, you can convince a whole lot of people of something that is not true. That doesn't make it true, um, and so. Just because somebody in power can do that doesn't mean that, it, that it's right. And so I go back to John Stuart Mill and the Enlightenment. This doesn't mean that enlightened people, rationality is always going to win. Obviously, it hasn't throughout history. Uh, but determining what's true, I think individual uh, citizens have to, to use reason and evidence, uh, as well as uh, you know, what the source of the information is, and, and make their own decisions. Catherine, is it just? Yes, I, I agree with that. And um, certainly the Enlightenment was uh, very influential for our founders. Um, and, and they were aware both of you know, the ancient democracies and the emerging late 18th century thought. Um, and, and here I, I might draw a little bit from this legal standards for defamation suits, where the jurors have to decide if a reasonable person would have believed the defamatory falsehood to be true. And there are a number of signals that courts look at uh, that the jurors could take into account, like um, if it's satirical in tone, if it's hyperbolic, if there are different ways of sort of signaling, I don't really mean this to be considered a fact. And in defamation law, court puts a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of the person who receives the defamatory statement, and they're supposed to look for those signals. They are supposed to um, not just talk about their immediate reaction. When I first heard that, I thought it was true, but to, after time for reflection, put it together with the other information at their disposal and then decide, does it sound like something that's true? And that's what the jury's supposed to figure out. If a lie is simply too incredible, not credible, to be believed, then it can't harm the person who's being lied about, can't harm the person's reputation if no reasonable person would believe it. So if you think about that standard, it expects us to be active listeners and to be constantly testing and comparing, thinking about the sources. Um, and that's very much what citizens are asked to do in assessing reality and truth and falsehood in a public or political context, which is a very enlightenment well, um, ideal. It's just building on that comment, um, what the, the reader or receiver of information ought to be expected to do. We see a kind of leveling up process there every time we come across a new means of reproducing images or, or manipulating images. When Photoshop was new, people still treated images as though they would convey facts that what you saw was real. And over the past 20 years of using the internet, we've become much more skeptical of images we're likely going to go through this process with video. Um, we're already in, in the beginning of it. Um, but that sense of societies 
broadly construed level of trust in various forms of media seems to matter a lot. Um, avoiding politicizing expertise more broadly, I think, is important, though this is always difficult because the more important to politics some form of expertise becomes, even something that could remain relatively apolitical before, it gets dragged into all of this. And we've certainly seen that around public health over the past two years. So we have a question from Facebook, uh, which I would note in passing, set out a few years ago, maybe three years ago, four years ago, did not be an arbiter of truth, and then found itself being an arbiter of truth. So this is, this is a tough area. But this question from Facebook was also uh, uh, touched on by several other people online. So how does the argument you make, and I think this is primarily for you, how does it apply to Congress, other politicians, and bureaucrats who are frequently public, or almost always public officials, right? Yes. Um, well, it, it absolutely applies to bureaucrats, civil servants, and so forth. Um, and there, the line of authority over what can be disciplined is much clearer, because most people have an immediate boss and even a higher level boss. And the reason this has to go to Congress for the president is the president is sort of the CEO um, and who has oversight over the CEO. It's Congress. Um, in a private corporation, it could be you know, the, the board of the outside board or the board of directors. Um, but for other politicians, um, if you are a congressman or a state legislator, the body in which you sit has disciplinary authority over your speech and conduct. For example, if a member of the House of Representatives were to host something threatening the lives of other public officials, it would be incumbent first on their party and then on the body in which they sit to impose discipline. Um, so we normally have a line of, um, of reporting that enables us to discipline, and we don't have to reach out uh, to the unusual um, and, and unique means that apply to presidents and very high officials like cabinet members. But um, in addition to that, I just want to clarify that when public employees are disciplined for what they say, it's not always and it's certainly, and as I point out, it can be used to go after truth-tellers. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that those who lie will be punished for that, because it's up to their bosses what they think the speech that should be disciplined consists of. And often it's just something that the uh, higher-ups think makes the office look bad. And that is very similar to a reason that a private employer who isn't bound by the First Amendment, because the First Amendment is only about what the government can and cannot do, cannot punish you for speech or forbid you your speech before it occurs. Private employers can and do fire people all the time for what they say. And they fire people for what they say on Facebook and on Twitter that they just don't want to be associated with. So it doesn't have to violate any particular set of principles or be dishonest in any way. It's something your employer doesn't want you to be associated with. And in fact, a number of the 
less known figures uh, that I, who I write about who have turned in, like the woman who turned in Xavier Alvarez to the FBI. She lost her job. And a number of the other people like that in my book lost their jobs for private employers because of what they said. So I see no one at the microphone here in person. Uh, would you like to ask a question? Yes, yes. please do. I guess, uh, I guess what I'm really uh, interested in is perception today is truth. Uh, we do a lot of headline news, and no one reads the article to find out exactly what that headline news is all about. And we take that headline as truth, and it gets passed over and over and over again. And people are unable to make a, a qualified decision on things because they don't have the proper information. A lot of, I grew up in the Nixon era. Uh, I watched that unfolding. Johnson in uh, Vietnam and up until this time now. And I read a lot. I come to the Cato uh, talks. And I'm concerned when I speak to the people that they read the headline back to me. And I consistently say to them, what does that mean? How do you, how do you come out with that opinion? And I think that's part of the issue that we're having with uh, the amount of lies that are being told, because you're not going to search them. You're not going to look at them. If I, if I could just add something from online to this. Uh, given all of that, uh, is, is there teaching critical thinking and media proficiency, news literary proficiency in the schools, is that something we should be looking at? Is that really the response to that? that was raised online? Absolutely, yes. Uh, we, we need to better educate citizens and future citizens, the, the young people who are citizens but not yet actively engaging in citizenship and voting, um, how to be skeptical readers. Uh, so I think there, there's a division of responsibility. I agree very much with what Will said about trying to restore trustworthy media. I don't know how you put that back in the barn at this point. It is way beyond my expertise. Um, but um, the, the citizenship responsibility means you people should not just be relying on pre-selected articles that, are, that come into their feed, that they shouldn't be um, failing to read to the bottom of the story because a headline doesn't always accurately capture the, um, the summary of the information. Sometimes headlines are very misleading. Um, and people need to think much more about their sources. So if you read something on Twitter, um, how reliable is that? Uh, you know, for myself, I know there are some people uh, whose tweets I know have proven reliable in the past. I'm more likely to accept what they say, but then I also need to do some other research in more traditional media forms. Um, and I confess 
I am a, a really old-fashioned person, and I read the paper every day in hard copy. The, the fact that most people don't read a newspaper means that there are many, many things, stories that they're not exposed to unless somebody already thinks they're following that question. It makes it much harder to read to the bottom of the story. And um, my, my father was initially a journalist, and he taught me I had to read the paper from the back to the front so that I would read all the stories, not just the ones that the editors decided were the most important, deserving to be on the front page. That's quite a luxury of time <laughs> um, that I know most people can't do. But there is a real, um, uh, um, and I think you know, Will was addressing this, that was way beyond the topic of my book, how do we cut through uh, misinformation and it requires a lot of work on the part of the public and to demand from the legacy news media and what is replacing it that they do a more careful job and make this information available to us. So we're right at the end now. What I would propose is we have two other people that have stood up. I would like for you to both ask your questions and then we'll close with your answers. So please over here on the left and on my left and then to the right. Uh, first of all, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Um, I tried to whittle this down into like a concrete question, but um, it seems like even if we're dealing with a fact that's really obviously being violated or you know being spoken against in a clear way, a fact we all agree on, it's going to be difficult to make progress following your recommendations, which you said yourself. I'm curious what you might have to say about something that's an ambiguous truth or where there is intentional creation of ambiguity. I'm thinking here, for example, where we rely on scientists to answer these questions. Um, and this gets to your point about cultivating you know, reliable, credible, trustworthy sources of knowledge. And often we turn to experts and scientists to try to help us understand what an ambiguous truth might be. Um, and so I'd like to hear what you might have to say about the violation of ambiguous truths. Um, I'm thinking in particular about climate science and the debate about climate change. Um, we can think, for example, about is it a lie, for example, when the president seeks to undermine the credibility of scientists? Not saying that the science is outright untrue, but saying we can't trust it. So not necessarily lying about a fact, but trying to undermine those credible sources that traditionally are more reliable. So if you had anything to say about that. Thank you. Please, our last question. Um, I have two brief ones for Professor Ross. So firstly, would incumbent candidates on the campaign trail... I'm sorry, can you get a little closer yeah, to the mic? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you can mask. We may have a mask. Oh, okay. Um, would incumbent candidates face less or have less uh, protections for their political speech than non-incumbent candidates? And um, secondly, do you think that there are lies that could amount to deprivations or liber of liberty or process such that they would be actionable under the due process clause? Under the due process clause? Just say another word about that. I haven't really thought about it in that perspective. Yeah, so I, I haven't read the book, but that's what came to mind when I was thinking about um, executive lies. The first thing I thought of was, you know, sometimes prosecutors or, or police officers are, are you know, in, incentivized to secure 
uh, more, more convictions so they lie. And, and I'm sure somebody could make an argument that uh, President Trump, in his interest, would behave in a way that also might amount to a property or liberty uh, interest deprivation. I was wondering if you thought that was cognizable. Very, very interesting twist. Thank you for that. Uh, if, I'm going to take that one first and then go back to the com comment deniers. Um, well, I, I think you're talking about areas that, that are already covered by other kinds of laws. It, it is um, a professional violation and a legal violation to make misrepresentations in a courtroom. So if a prosecutor or related to a case, um, if a prosecutor were to do what you're suggesting, many other aspects of law and also the um, potential to lose one's law license, which we in the profession call a meal ticket, um, is looms large. We don't need to look to other kinds of solutions. Um, but you're right that if, if lying were endemic in, um, in, in courtrooms, um, our whole justice system would collapse. Um, so I, I, I don't think due process actually plays into this, but I'm going to think about it more. As to other kinds of science beyond COVID, um, you know, there are a couple, first, I, I do think that when a president undermines science generally and says, you know, the voodoo practitioner is just as trustworthy as NHS in a time of a grave health crisis, that is a lie that we can prove scientifically um, and should be um, should be slapped down because it endangers people. Uh, climate science um, is one of those areas where it might be very, very hard to prove that there's a verifiable false statement of fact. Because even though the scientific literature, as I understand it, and it's not my specialty, like 99% on the scale, global warming is true, and it's caused by humans. Um, if there's a 1%, there will be people who say, I'm going to go with the 1%, and maybe this is a paradigm shift. You know, people didn't used to believe in gravity. People thought the Earth was flat. Um, or is something an opinion rather than an assertion of purported fact? That's where it gets so hard to actually agree about what a lie is. And also, when we talk about experts, uh, another point that I make is just because someone is an expert in something doesn't make them an expert on everything. And Trump relied on a lot of people who he called experts who were not experts in what he was asking them to speak to. Um, so. We should respect experts, but one thing that undermines that is the misuse of experts and false claims of expertise. So that leads me to, I do, first of all, uh, the other two commenters, do you want anything on this as we run out of time? And I'll finish with my amusing story, my allegedly amusing story, which is when I came to the Cato Institute, I was, came from a university background, and so I was doing TV training you know, right when I first came here. And uh, I, I didn't understand things very well, so it was explained to me. So I was asked to talk about something that was outside my area of expertise. And I said, 
why, you know, I really don't know much about that. I shouldn't say anything. I'm not an expert. And to which point the person said to me that was doing the training, if you're on TV, you're an expert. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, I think that's so, that sums up an entire, <laughs> probably part of our problems too, because it's not unique to here or anywhere else. So we're going to lunch. It's upstairs. Uh, it's on the second level at the George Yeager Conference Center. Uh, it, the restrooms are located on the way up there, but you go up the spiral staircase and then back. Again, the book is A Right to Lie, Presidents, Other Liars, and the First Amendment by our guest today, Catherine Ross. I hope you enjoy it. I thank you for coming and joining us, and please join us also for lunch.